We know that um, some of the Corinthians, some of the people in the Corinthian church were allowing or letting bad company ruin good doctrine in that church. Chapter 15, verse 33. In other words, some of the Corinthians had ongoing relationships with some of those Platonistic local Greek philosophers, and those Greek philosophers were influencing some of the Corinthians to reject their own resurrection. And so they were kind of bringing in bad doctrine into the church through these relationships. And um, I guess they somehow, which I can't figure out, they affirmed the resurrection of Christ. They didn't deny that. Maybe they questioned it at best, but they didn't deny that facet of the gospel, but they were denying their own future resurrection. One leads to the other. And so I don't, I guess it was the philosophers that had poisoned the well here and they were just okay with Jesus's resurrection, but didn't think that they would be raised later on. And in verse or chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, Paul essentially defends the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and more particularly, he defends the future resurrection of believers um, by describing how resurrection is not only possible, but an essential, but how it's actually essential to the faith. And in, in that particular section, he gives these seven kind of disastrous consequences that would result if there were no resurrection. And last Sunday, we looked at consequences one through four. Uh, Christ himself, if there's no resurrection, if, you, if, you, if the believer denies their own future resurrection, they're denying resurrection as a whole in a sense. And, and if there's no resurrection, then the first thing we looked at is that Christ himself would not be risen. That was in verse 13. And then secondly, if there's no resurrection, preaching the gospel would be just worthless and meaningless. That was in verse 14a. And then obviously, if there's no resurrection, faith in Christ would be worthless, right? You, got a, a, you don't have a Savior that's risen. You've got a worthless message. You've got worthless faith. And then lastly, Paul said in verse 15 that everyone who's ever witnessed the actual risen Christ, and there was well over 500 people according to the New Testament, and anyone who's ever preached or taught about, taught the gospel or the resurrection of Christ, all of them throughout all history would be liars. So those were the first four really bad consequences if there is no resurrection. And we looked at those things last week. This morning, we'll deal with consequences five through seven. Pretty much wrap up this section. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians we're back in chapter 15, obviously, and we'll be focusing on just verses 16 to 19. That's where we find these remaining consequences. I want to pray and ask God for help before we get to work. Lord, we're going to need your help this morning, especially me. I'm not only tired and lethargic, I can't seem to drink enough coffee. And I, I don't know what's wrong with me this morning. Maybe I needed to eat a better breakfast than a power bar. Uh, but I'm dragging, and I know others here are dragging. And uh, so, Lord, just um, help us in, in the midst of our physical um, tiredness just to, to be attentive and to listen and to hear and to see the truth and to believe it and to apply it. And we know that you're going to continue in this section, Lord, teaching and training us on the resurrection, especially the resurrection of believers as we look at these other consequences, if there were no such thing. And so... 
Just help us to pay attention, help us to absorb the truth, help us to believe it, help us to apply it, help us to live it, all for your glory and for your name's sake. So we commit the morning and ourselves to you, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So we can pick up where we left off, and that would be with the fifth consequence, and that is that if there were no resurrection, people would still be in their sins. And we see this in verses 16 to 17. We pick up at verse 16. This is what Paul says next. He says, for if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, not even Christ has been raised. So this is just a repeat of verse 13 before we actually get into this next consequence. He's just repeating verse 13 here. And it really is the primary point of his entire argument. If the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, uh, then you can't even declare that Christ himself has been raised. Why the repetition here? Why does he slide us back to verse 13? Why does he repeat this? Well, it's mostly because that's the primary point. If you reject any point in resurrection, you've gotten rid of the resurrection of Christ. We're in big trouble. So partly the repetition exists to kind of illustrate the, the importance or the incredible importance of resurrection. But I think mostly the reason why the repetition is here is to signify a change in application. In verses 12 to 15, Paul applies the thought of no resurrection to theology. He talks about the theological consequences if there is no resurrection. This is what it, it means here. If there's no resurrection, then there are theological consequences, and that's what he's covered in the previous section. It's like he's saying if there were no resurrection... Um, in the previous text, here's what would happen theologically. And what has he stated already? Well, the gospel would be meaningless and faith would be worthless and scripture would be, it wouldn't be inerrant without error. It would be errant because it would be filled with false testimonies and, and errors and lies about, you know, from coming from those who witnessed Christ raised and all that. So those are theological consequences. That first section of consequences we looked at are all, if you go back and look at them, they're all theological. And so he repeats the saying that he launched into that first set of consequences. He repeats it because he's going to now launch into a whole new set of consequences. And they aren't theological consequences in verses 16 to 19. They are personal consequences, not just things that happen to truth. They're now things that happen to us, especially believers. So he's pivoting, he's switching, he's changing direction. He's moving from theological consequence to personal consequence. It's like he's saying, if there were no resurrection, here's what would happen to us personally and so on. And he identifies the first personal consequence in verse 17. And it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's already kind of covered that, right? He's talked about how faith would be worthless. So he's already touched on that. But here it is, and you would still be in your sins. Ultimately, if Christ has not been raised and we are trusting in him, we are trusting in a dead Savior. We're trusting in one who has not been raised from the dead. 
And since a dead Savior cannot give life, faith in him would be, as Paul says uh, in, back in verse 14b, it would be vain. And as he states here in verse 17, what kind of faith would that be if you're believing in a dead Savior? Firstly, he says it would be vain, and now he's saying it would be futile or futile. He used two Greek words to illustrate the absolute worthlessness of faith if there were no resurrection. In verse 14b, he used kinos, and in verse 17, he used mateos or matios. Kinos means empty-handed. Your faith would be empty-handed, is what he said in 14b. The idea that those who grab onto a dead Savior for salvation, what are they grabbing onto? Thin air. They actually have nothing in their grasp, nothing in their hands. That's the point of 14b. If Christ is still dead and hasn't risen, you're grabbing onto nothing. There's nothing there. You might think you're grabbing onto Christ, but since you're grabbing onto a corpse, you have really nothing in your hands but a corpse. That's the point. That's the meaning of kinos. And mataios, or however you pronounce it, it basically means useless or empty or fruitless. The idea is that those who, who by faith trust in a dead Savior for salvation, their faith is empty, it's useless, it's fruitless. Their faith is producing nothing salvific because the one in whom they are trusting in is dead. That's the point here in 17. That's the point back in 14b. Your faith is futile. Your faith is vain. It's empty. You're hanging on to nothing because he's dead. So he kind of, before he launches into this fifth consequence, um, or sixth, what are we on? The fifth consequence, right? Yeah, before he even launches into this fifth consequence, he re reiterates the absolute worthlessness of faith in a dead Savior. But the futility of faith, the vanity or vainness of faith, in an unresurrected dead Savior is really not the main point of verse 17. It's, it, he's mentioning it here and back in 14b, but it's not really the driving thought here in 17. It's not the main point of verse 17. The main point of verse 17 is the perpetuity of sin, the ongoingness of sin, the perpetuation of sin. That's the point. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then sin won the victory over Christ, and sin continues to be victorious over all who trust in him. That's the point Paul is making in verse 17. You see, when, when Jesus rose from the dead, there is in his rising the conquering of sin and sin's end result, which is death. What is the wages of sin? Romans 6.23, death. So if he doesn't rise, there's no victory. There's no conquering of sin and death. And what does that mean? What are the implications? If we're worshiping and believing in a dead Savior who didn't conquer sin, we are still in our sins. That's Paul's point. That's the logic. If he didn't rise, we are still in our sins. You see, 
Maybe you've never thought about this. It's not something we ponder very often, but it really wasn't enough. And you might say, oh, I don't like what you're about to say here, or I don't like what you're going to say here, I don't like what you've said. But here's the deal. It wasn't enough. And I say this because we put so much emphasis on this object of destruction, this, uh, 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 this, this, this crucifixion tool, this mode of capital punishment. We Christians put so much emphasis on the cross, and now I'm going to say something to you controversial. What he did there was not enough. Wasn't enough. You see, what he did there was he paid for our sins. That's where he made the payment for our sins. But that is not where he conquered and destroyed the effect of sin upon us. That happens only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so the cross is amazing. It's beautiful. It's okay for us to emphasize it. But if we stop at the cross, only the payment has been made. There is no actual victory over sin. There is no conquering of death. You can't, you can't have a crucifixion-only gospel. You have to have a burial. You have to have a resurrection because it takes all three of those acts and those historical events and those works of Christ to finally conquer and obliterate sin and death. And what Paul is saying here is that in a way, by you rejecting resurrection, you're stopping at the crucifixion. And at the, at the cross, only your, sin, your sins were paid for. Wonderful, great. But they haven't been literally taken away from you in the sense and separated through burial and then, and then destroyed through him rising. This is exactly what he's illustrating here. It's what he's saying. It wasn't enough for Christ to die on the cross for our sins. His bloody death was the payment, the atonement. And we are insanely thankful for that. But he did not win the victory over sin at the cross. That was only the payment. Victory over sin requires the defeating of death. Why? I've already told you. Because death is the wage and end result of sin. Romans 6.23. For someone to win the victory over sin, they would have to defeat sin's wage and final result. They would have to defeat death. Not by avoiding it, not by skirting it, but by experiencing it theirself. And then by permanently destroying and conquering it through resurrection. Does that make sense to you? It's kind of a shame that we, and I'm guilty of this, that we all put the only time every year that we really put emphasis on the resurrection is, is at Easter. And maybe now that we understand a proper theology of the atonement, that the only way for sin to be dealt the death blow is through Christ rising. I don't think that's something that's worthy of celebrating only on Easter. We spend our whole year talking about the cross. Only the payment was made there. The victory comes through him rising. I think we should give equal attention. Don't you? The resurrection is everything in chapter 15. 
If we lose it, we have nothing. A thousand saviors could die on a thousand crosses. At the end of the day, we're still in our sins if Jesus doesn't rise. He must rise to defeat death and destroy it. He has to. If one of those historical events, talking of, uh, speaking of the death, burial, or resurrection of Christ, if one of those historical events, and of course biblical doctrines, was untrue, then the power and effect of sin would totally remain and believers would still be in their sins. That is Paul's exact point in verse 17. It's really that simple. And that's the fifth consequence. Now we can move to the sixth consequence. If there were no resurrection, believers that have died would be eternally lost. Verse 18. All the believers for all time, Old Testament, New Testament, apostolic, last week, every believer who has died in a dead Savior, because that's what no resurrection means, you're trusting in a dead Savior, every one of them for all time would be lost. There's no future resurrection for them. You see how they're lost? They remain in a state of death for all eternity. And death is ultimately a punishment from God for sin. So, I mean, they, everyone is, is in big trouble here. He says, then those, in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've all perished. They've perished. If Christ does not rise on the third day, every... Old Testament saint who had fallen asleep, and I think that's the, the immediate reference from Paul. All of them who have fallen asleep, which is just a, a nice way of saying they died. Paul says they've all perished. Noah, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, the major and minor prophets, thinking of Isaiah and Hosea and all the Zayas, all of them gone, all of them have perished for all eternity. And obviously, by implication, obviously the same consequence would apply to all the New Testament saints and all the saints of church history and all of the saints of today. They've all perished. Paul himself, the other apostles, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Whitfield, Jones, Boyce, Sproul, every other believer of every other age, all spending all eternity in damnation and hell in torment. Their faith would have been in vain. Their sins would have been unforgiven. And their eternal destiny would be damnation. That's the consequence of no resurrection. Saints that we've known that have passed on to go be with the Lord aren't with him at all because he's dead. They've gone down below. All of these saints that come to mind and the great ones from the Reformation and prior to that and even Paul and those in the, in the New Testament and the apostles and Stephen who preached one of the greatest sermons ever in Acts 7 and they're all frying. It's hard to fathom. All of these men and women throughout all time, all these wonderful people, Christians, their faith would have been in vain. Their sins would have been unforgiven. They're all damned. That's what Paul is saying. The Greek word for perished is apolemi, and it means to lose or to fail to get or to be destroyed. 
By the way, Jesus used that Greek word apollomy quite a bit. Matthew 10, 28, he said, do not fear those who kill the body, but kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can apollomy, destroy the body and soul in hell. He's warning his hearers about, you know, you're worried, you're worried about what the Romans can do to you? You need to worry about what God can do to you because he's the only one that can destroy your physical body now and destroy your soul in hell. Apollomy. Luke 13, 3, and in verse 5, Jesus says, no, and he says it twice. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise apollomy. You will perish. Luke 17, 29. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and Apollomai, or Apollomy, they destroyed them all. It destroyed the cities. Matthew 22, verse 7. This is the parable of the wedding feast. The end result of that story or a parable that Jesus tells that it has to do with a king inviting people in for a supper and the people that he was inviting in didn't want to come in. And then he says this, the king was angry and he sent his troops and Apollomy destroyed those murderers and burnt, burned their city. There you have the idea of Apollomy being attached to warfare and, and, and battle and conflict. It is used in Job 1.5, which is really just Job, or not Job, it's used in Jude 1.5, which is really Jude 5 because there's only one chapter. It's used there to describe the judgment that Christ brought upon unbelieving Israel in the wilderness. It says, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, Apollomy, he destroyed those who did not believe. Destroyed an entire generation of Israelites that had no faith. They were not allowed and permitted to go into the promised land. Roughly eight or nine centuries before Jesus was actually born. The Greek poet Homer used Apollomy in his Iliad to describe those who are destroyed or killed in battle. There's another instance where it's used to reflect or point to warfare and what happens in warfare. It's also used, the same Greek uh, verb is used about 15 times in the New Testament to destroy something that is lost, like lost Apollomy or sheep, Matt 10, 6, or lost coins, lost being the Greek word Apollomy, Luke 15, 19, or lost bread, John 6, 12, lost splendors and delicacies, Revelation uh, 18, 14. And it even is used to describe spiritually Apollomy, lost people. Right? Luke 15, 24, Luke 19, 10. Apollomy can mean all of these things that I'm describing, but I think loss seems to fit best with Paul's thought here. That's what he means when he says perished. Apollomy, they are lost. If there were no resurrection, believers that have passed away, that have fallen asleep, and believers who will eventually fall asleep and pass away, that's me and you, all would be Apollomy, eternally lost. That's the meaning. See, it was no insignificant matter for some Corinthians to reject their own future resurrection. We can start to see now. That's not just, oh, just a difference of opinion, just a different theology on resurrection. 
This is a huge danger, according to Paul. It's not some insignificant small matter. In doing so, these same Corinthians who rejected their own resurrection, they were simultaneously rejecting the sin-purchasing death of Christ, the account-settling burial of Christ, and the sin-conquering resurrection of Christ. They were still in their sins. And if they had died, if they reject their own resurrection, they're still in their sins ultimately because they're rejecting the resurrection of Christ. And if they pass away in this mode of belief, in this mode of thought, then they are, as Paul warns here, eternally lost. Ultimately, they would be no better off calling themselves Christians and coming and worshiping and all that while rejecting resurrection. <coughs> the end result is that they are no better, even though they call themselves Christians. We're believers. We have a fellowship. We have a church we go to. It's the church at Corinth. We're there every Sunday, and then we're there for men's Bible study on Monday and women's Bible study on Tuesday. It's such a wonderful thing. While simultaneously rejecting resurrection, they're no better no matter how religious they are. They're no better than unbelievers. That's what Paul is saying. You reject your own resurrection. You simultaneously reject the resurrection of Christ and everything else he did. You are in the same boat or position as an unbeliever who ultimately reject the gospel. That's what he's saying. David Garland wrote, If Christ has not been raised, then those who fall asleep in Christ are no different from unbelievers who are consigned to doom and ruin. The human terror of death as a gloomy portal leading to oblivion and divine condemnation would actually be justified because the implication is, he says, God abandons to perdition even those who are faithful, even those who believe. Everybody goes to the same place if there's no resurrection. It doesn't matter how religious you are. The same can be said of those who worship a divinityless Jesus, who worship a Jesus who is just a man, who is a really good man, but is not God. And some of these people that do this are the most religious people on earth. They even avoid caffeine. I cannot live without it. And they will perish in their sins because they have a wrong Jesus. And if we fumble around with resurrection or any of that, we end up with a different Jesus than what the scripture teaches. And our destiny is no different. This is what Paul is essentially saying here. And this is what Garland has said. Everything that we've ever believed when we were unbelievers about death, which was a terrifying thing for an unbeliever, it's all true. You go off into the blackness, into the, the darkness, and the terror, and the screams, and the, and the gnashing of teeth, and all these thoughts that our culture has, and it's all true if there's no resurrection. Let's move to the seventh and final consequence. This might be the shortest sermon I've ever preached. We're headed in that, don't you dare amen that. <laughs> Well, we have communion, so. And you know, every time I say something like this, I end up going 15 minutes long. <laughs> but we're moving quick, and it's okay. We don't say we have to preach for an hour or less or more. We just do what's in front of us, okay? Seventh consequence, if there were no resurrection, 
He says Christians would be the most pitiable people on earth. In verse 19, right? We should be the most pitiable people on earth. Really the most pitiful and the most to be pitied. That's what he says. 19, if in Christ we have hope, uh, if in Christ we hope in this life only, like only salvation only for this temporal life, if that's what we're believing in a Christ that hasn't risen and won't raise us, that's what he's saying. He says, we are of all people most to be pitied. I think in light of the other consequences that we've talked about, this one is pretty obvious. Paul is saying that if there were no resurrection, Christianity would be pointless and pitiable. There would be no gospel. There, there would be no meaningful preaching, no saving faith, no trustworthy witnesses, no trustworthy preachers and teachers, all a bunch of stinking liars, no forgiveness of sin, no eternal life. Everyone who dies in Christ, the Christ they're believing in, this dead Christ, they all perish. If, we've, if we have, in our own lives, we have come to trust in this dead Savior and we devote our lives to this dead Savior and we, we come to a worship gathering every week to worship this dead Savior and we go to studies every week to learn about this dead Savior and we go out on the streets and evangelize this dead Savior or at the grocery store or at your school or job, whatever it is. You, you, you know, at some point in the worship service, you reach down into your pocket and you pull out some money and you, and you put it in an envelope then you walk it over to the thing and you put it in there to a dead Savior, come to find out that we've been worshiping a dead Savior that can't save us all along, and we've gone through all those motions for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, Bruce, 100 years. <laughs> what a fool! Right? What an idiot! What kind of an idiot have I been? <coughs> That's the point. At that point, this world that hates Christians, it ought to come together, somehow have a little bit of a spurt of mercy, and come together and come to us Christians and say, and pet us like a dog, we're so sorry that you squandered your faith. Right? We're deserving of the highest level of pity is what he's saying. We're so sorry that you devoted your entire life to a dead Savior. We're so sorry that you spent all your faith on that and all your resource and every Sunday and every Monday. And we're sorry that Phil committed himself to Christian ministry. Even the world should come to us and say, we're so sorry that you went through that. Because we are to be pitied at a level that transcends anything else. We have squandered it all on a dead Savior. That's the point that Paul is illustrating. That's what he means. Just think about what a waste that would be. And in fact, that's what countless billions are doing at this very moment with their idols and false gods. Oh. Take yourself out of the equation. You don't have a dead Savior. You have one that's very much alive. But the rest of the world does not. We would be believing in and sacrificing for a dead Savior who can literally do nothing for us. 
Therefore, we should be pitied above all others for squandering our lives and sacrificing for nothing. David Garland once more says Christianity would be an ineffective religion that is actually detrimental to one's health since it bestows suffering on its followers. Suffering the loss of all things because of Christ and sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death with the hope of attaining the resurrection would all turn out to be nothing but foolishness. And that's exactly what we're all doing together. Maybe he's dead and hasn't risen. What a complete and utter waste of time. Years ago, uh, somebody I really admire, John Piper, he wrote a book called, entitled, Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life. The book was not written to unbelievers who are in a perpetual state of wasting their lives. And I don't say that with any malice. That was me for 30-something years. What was I doing? Chasing after my own desires and stuff. What a squandering of a life. And, but he writes this book, and he doesn't write it to unbelievers. He writes it to believers. Why would you write it to believers? Because believers can get in the habit of wasting their lives on trivial temporal things and worldly concerns. And, and he writes this wonderful book. And the basic premise is that Christians run the risk of living an irrelevant life that counts for nothing. He encourages believers to seek after deeper joys and, and to take risks that matter for eternity. It's really a great book, very convicting book. It's the kind of book you read and you give up the NFL, right? But according to Paul in verse 19, the most spectacular way for a Christian to waste his or her life would be for them to, divide, to, to devote their life to a dead Savior. How do we know this to be true? Because he says here that those who would do such a thing and they alone are to be pitied above all others. The ultimate way to waste your life is to believe in a Christ that is not the Christ of the Bible or to believe in any false god or idol that cannot save. Dead prophets like Muhammad, Buddha. If there is no resurrection, Christ is dead. And we Christians who go through all these motions and do all this stuff for this dead Savior and for each other, we are the biggest fools to walk the face of the earth. There's nobody dumber. Not even Lloyd and Harry. We are dumber than dumber and dumber. We would be capital D dummies for basing our lives and future on a corpse. What is that? Worshiping a dead guy. Giving for a dead guy, servicing for it, serving one another for a dead guy, going to conferences for a dead guy. Can't wait to go here down at, at down at Grace Church in LA. They're gonna talk about this dead guy. Well, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. He's not dead. Capital D dummies. You know, the world would actually be right when it says the cross is folly. Wouldn't it be right? The cross would be folly. It, and that means stupid, dumb. 
this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christianity thing, if he didn't rise, it, it's just it's just dumb. It's folly. And of course, the application of verse 19 doesn't just apply to mere Christians, that we would be the biggest fools in the world for trusting in a dead Savior. It applies to anyone and everyone who trusts in an unresurrected dead Savior. All are to be pitied because they are committing the same error. They are trusting in someone or something that cannot give them life. They are sacrificing and suffering for something or someone who cannot save them. Not to pick on Muslims, but Muslims can be pretty extreme. Some of them commit jihad, a type of warfare. Some of them even blow themselves up in an attempt to kill others. Why? So they can receive dead Mohammed's promises. 70 virgins, other nonsense. I've seen videos of Buddhist monks setting themselves on fire and burning themselves to death for the dead Buddha. The Branch Davidians in Waco and the Jonestowners in Guyana, they all gave their lives for dead saviors, Koresh, and Jones. Those who belong to such groups are to be pitied because they are deceived and squandering their faith and squandering their lives and squandering their futures on something or someone that can never save them. What I find most interesting about verse 19 is what is implied, not stated. And that is that Paul did not believe that Christianity would be worth it at all if it's untrue. That's, that's the point he's making in verse 19. All of Christianity, if you are a member or a part of that Christian movement, Christian religion, if you will, it's not worth being part of for two seconds if it's untrue. That's what he's saying. In his mind, living a life of sacrificial suffering for a savior that cannot save, that would be pitiable at the highest level. It wouldn't be profitable at all. Why bother with that? Wouldn't the alternative be better? Just living as an irreligious unbeliever who focuses on living their best life now? Just doing what they want? Yeah, I think so. I've never been able to figure out why unregenerate people attach themselves to the church. Why do they do that? Why be religious when as an unbeliever, you don't have to be? It's just... In your mind, I mean, you're just, in my mind, you're just adding a bunch of rules and stipulations and, and guilt and, 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 and condemnation and, and all these things. I have to tell you, I spent a lot of time as an unbeliever. And if this thing is bunk, I'll go back and just do what I want whenever I want. 
That's the point he's making in verse 19. Christianity, like anything else, is not worth it if it's false. It would be better just to be an unbelieving pagan and to do what you want without having a pastor scream at you, without having Christians go, what is it, what you doing? Right? I couldn't see anything with my glasses off, <laughs> like Popeye. I mean, Rachel and I have had this conversation in years past. It's like, why do people attach themselves? You know that they aren't actual believers. You know that they aren't saved. You know that they aren't regenerate, but they spend sometimes even years in a church. I didn't even have that on my radar when I was an unbeliever. When somebody asked me to go to church, I was like, eh, why would I do that? Catholic guilt. Do you think that if this deal that we're involved in is bunk, it's been worth it? Has it been worth it for you to give, I don't know, say 10% of your income for 20 years? Or 5%? Has that been worth it? Has the, has the, uh, the difficulties and travails in your own life, has that been worth it? I'm saying if it's false, Bruce, hold the, don't fire the gun yet. Bruce's like, oh, preach it, brother. I'm not talking about that yet. I'm saying if it's bunk, is it worth it? A life of sacrifice, giving of your time, talent, and treasure, going through lots of heartache, because sometimes being a Christian brings that because it can bring persecution and it can divide families and blow things apart. Dealing with church dynamics and, and our own selfishness and the difficulties that exist in the church, uh, you know, and you just, just stop and take an inventory of everything that you've gone through in the name of Jesus. And now he's dead and never rose and you're going to go to hell anyways. Is it worth it? It's not worth it. I'm not saying my life was any better before Christ. It was, a, it was horrific. But let's keep in mind that I'm not trusting in a dead Savior. I'm trusting in one who defeated death and who rose from the grave. Amen. Who smoked death who destroyed the power of sin. That's who I believe. That Savior is worth it. That Savior and that religion is worth the sacrifice, worth the travail, worth the persecution. But one who died and his bones are in a tomb, that ain't worth anything. I'd rather just go back to being an unbeliever. You understand the point I'm making? That's the point that Paul is making. He doesn't think that Christianity be, would be worth five seconds of his time if it's untrue. And he's trying to teach the Corinthians that it's not worth your time if it's untrue. But it is true, and you better quit acting like it isn't true. 
Because when you deny your own resurrection, you are saying there is something defective in Christianity. You cannot say you will not be raised. Because to say that is to say that he was not raised. That's the point. I think we would all agree that religion that cannot bring life is an absolute waste of time and resources. Amen? Why bother? And yet this would be the final consequence, number seven, if there is no resurrection. Everything we know, gone. That's the point. Christians would be believing for nothing, sacrificing for nothing, suffering for nothing, and in some instances, even being martyred for nothing. And the world's pity, as Paul says, should be aimed at us for being so utterly deceived and wasteful. See, the Corinthians were playing a very, very dangerous game by trying to separate the resurrection of believers from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we deny our resurrection, we deny his resurrection. And we ultimately lose the gospel and have no hope for salvation. That's what's literally at stake here. Augustine once said, and this is so good, if you believe what you like about the gospel and reject what you don't like about the gospel, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. In the next section, Paul shifts from describing the terrible, dreary consequences of no resurrection to proclaiming Christ as risen, as the sovereign destroyer of sin and death. That's what's coming up next. Paul doesn't just leave us with the dreary. He now switches and talks about the risen, death, sin-destroying Christ. Amen? Amen? That's where we're headed.